Deuteronomy chapter 21. And in chapter 19 of Deuteronomy, Israel is to establish cities of refuge when they possess the land of Canaan. These were to be cities of safety for those who had killed a person accidentally or perhaps killed a person in self-defense. But there was no sanctuary, there was no city of refuge for a murderer. First-degree murderers, there was never even any forgiveness in the law for that. And when David committed murder by killing Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, the prophet had to come to him and tell him God had forgiven him because David could not offer a sacrifice or do anything to receive God's forgiveness, but God is gracious, and so he sent a prophet to tell him. Chapter 20 reveals how you could be exempt from going to war if you had just built a new house. Or perhaps you had just planted a new vineyard and you hadn't uh, ate of the grapes or drank of the wine. You, you were exempt. You were also exempt if you were afraid. And it says if you're faint-hearted, then you don't have to go to war. Because that faint-hearted one would be a bad example, uh, a bad influence on the other soldiers. So you didn't have to go if you were afraid. You were exempt if you were newly married. You had a right to enjoy your wife uh, for at least a year before you went off to war. And some, some of these are just kindnesses that God bestowed upon his people Israel. But let's read Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have bo both borne him children, the loved and the unloved, and if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day that he bequeaths his possessions to his sons, that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all he has. For he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. Now, if you had two wives and you love one more than the other, you could not show partiality to the loved wife by giving her son the greater inheritance. The firstborn, regardless of the loved or unloved wife, received a double portion, uh, not mattering who his mother was. Let me just add here, better to only have one wife, fellows. <laughs> now we get into the discipline or the punishment of a rebellious son. And that's in verses 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, 
and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gates of the city, and they shall say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. <laughs> not too good. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, so you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Pretty strong. <laughs> the options of the parents of this stubborn and rebellious son were nil. They didn't have any options. Mom and dad shall bring him before the elders of the city for judgment. And so you had well-behaved children throughout Israel. I've had my times raising my sons, my boys, and there have been some times that were exasperating, and there's been times of delight where, you know, you're just totally pleased with them. But we see here in this passage that the entire community was involved in the punishment of a rebellious son. Not correction, punishment. There's a difference. My mild-mannered wife, Lori, had a question for my cousin's son. He was about 20 years old. Uh, he really had a smart mouth on him and that kind of thing. And Lori said to him, your daddy did not whoop you enough when you were young, did he? <laughs> I had to agree. <laughs> Evidently, this boy needed a few whoopings. <laughs> and if you had a son who was rebellious, stubborn, disobedient, glutton, and a drunkard, that's kind of strong, then you've either failed as a parent or you have a bad seed for a son. A little pain on the backside of a young child opens up the brain waves for that child to say, I don't think I want to do that again. I am for spanking when necessary. Not beating, not physically abusing a child, not injuring a child, but I am for spanking. For when you spank, you instantly are dealing with bad behavior. And punishment rendered as soon as possible for bad behavior has its benefits. Once a child has been paddled, you can restore that parental love to that child instantly also. You can take them in your arms and explain to them why you had to spank them. But have a reason to spank. My dad didn't seem to have to have a reason. And we didn't get spankings, we got whoopings. And let a child know why you've had to spank them. And then I recommend giving that child a hug, putting them on your lap, caressing them, and explaining to them that the bad behavior will not be accepted. And that's why we had to spank you. Discipline 
is dealt with, and then it's over with when you spank. There's no grudges. There's no lingering effects. But I see, and I'm old, but I see way too many parents afraid to be parents. I see a lot of parents trying to be their child's best buddy. Don't be afraid to discipline because there's none of us that haven't needed discipline. I think when you send a child to their room or take away privileges, you have to be careful there because you can build up resentment in that child towards you. My mean old mom or dad is sending me in here where I don't have nothing to do. Where if you spank them, it's over with, and you've dealt with it. Don't be afraid to discipline. And don't be promising discipline without delivering. If my mom or dad said, you're going to get a whooping, boy, you've been bad and you know it, you could take it to the bank, you were going to get a whooping. I've also seen parents that are yellers. You ever have a parent that was a yeller? The child will completely ignore the parents until the parent's voice reaches 100 decibels. And then all of a sudden the child can hear and pay attention. Don't tell a child to stop or be quiet unless you mean it. No three or four times of warning before you take action. Let your first no be no. I've told my children that in raising our beautiful grandchildren. Save yourself a lot of grief. Just let your first no mean no. Years ago, I was a deacon at Modesto Calvary Chapel. And we were in the fellowship area. And we, we were in an old building with a flat roof on it. And we heard footsteps on the roof this other deacon and myself. And we investigated hearing the footstep, and sure enough, some young boys had climbed up the fire escape and were on the roof, and they were enjoying themselves. We corralled these young guys, and my fellow deacon said, Now, boys, don't be doing this because you could get hurt. And he said, We'll keep this just between uh, ourselves, and I'm not going to tell your parents. With that, I said, time out. He said that, not me. You can rest assured I'm going to tell your parents. And they didn't like me. But my friend was trying to be their buddy. And I was trying to keep them from climbing on the roof. And there was a world of difference. <laughs> I lost myself there. I'll find it. But the young boys, and they weren't, you know, they were 10 to 12 somewhere in there. They weren't being bad, but they were being dangerous, and they didn't realize they could really get hurt seriously. But Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Those aren't my words. Those are words from God.
Discipline from a loving parent is a demonstration that you love your child and you care how they behave. Notice that the loving father is there to discipline, but the unloving father, and it goes without saying, refuses to discipline. In Proverbs 19, 18, chasten your child while there is hope. You can let a child go his own way, do his own thing, and then turn around and you've got a little monster on your hands. <laughs> you know, one that will not behave, one that's going to just be causing trouble wherever he goes. You love that child and discipline that child. My daughter was a piece of cake to raise. She really was. She had a true desire down deep within her to please mom and dad. And rarely did we ever have to discipline her or spank her. We, all we had to do was explain to her that her behavior was not acceptable, and that was good. She would change. And I go, wow. And then I had three boys. <laughs> Total different story with those boys. Um, but in Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, a stubborn and rebellious son was to be judged by the elders of the city and stoned to death. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Kill that boy. <laughs> My goodness. But the word says they were putting away evil from their midst. Putting away evil. Wow. Not much leniency there. In the story of the prodigal son, you know, the one son that goes off and does his own thing. That father didn't take his son before the gates of the city. For the city would have probably... the elders would have probably stoned him. That's how offensive the prodigal son was, that he's, his life was in danger if his father would have took him before the judges of the city. But let's read about the penalty of a man committing a sin worthy of death, and that's in verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged upon a tree, speaking, is accursed of God. The executing of a criminal by hanging him upon a tree, be it crucifixion, or be it the wild old west just stringing up a guy from a tree was a cursed thing in the eyes of God. God in his wisdom, God in his own economies, he says, I declare that hanging upon a tree is probably the most humiliating form of execution that can be, and it's a cursed thing in my eyes. Well, who brought about hanging on a tree? Well, 
They think it was the Chaldeans who began hanging or crucifixion to execute a criminal. The Chaldeans would sharpen a big log, sharpen it like you would a pencil, and then they would shove the criminal down on this sharp point, set the pole in the ground. This man would then frail about like, you know, a skewered shish kebab or something until he died. This criminal, though, was raised up in the air for all to see his death, and it was considered accursed by God. By the time of Christ, we have Rome, who has refined crucifixion to a cross. The prisoner usually tried, but not always tried, and Rome kind of did what they pleased, convicted and if he was convicted, he was required to carry his crossbeam through the city where it described his crime. Most likely, Jesus only carried the crossbeam, the upper part of a T, through the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha. Crucifixion was Rome's way of saying, stay in line. Be obedient to us or suffer the cross. The cross was a brutal reminder to all of Rome's enemy. Be careful. You best pay attention to our laws. A person crucified did not always die a quick death. There have been cases where they live for days on the cross, hanging there. Without getting into the details of the brutality of the cross or the shame and the humility of the cross, knowing that it was gruesome, we hear God declare to hang upon a cross is to be accursed by God. And this curse was so great among the Jewish people that when a criminal died upon a cross, you were required to take him down before sunset and bury him. That person that had died on a cross was not to hang there overnight. So this brings meaning to the fact that the Roman soldier pierced the side of Jesus, making sure he was dead so they could take him down and bury him. But here's a question. How long or when did Jesus realize that crucifixion awaited him? It was his destiny. When did it dawn on him that he had to die upon a cross? While you're thinking on that, let's read Hebrews 12, 1 through 6. It will shed a little light here for us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the 
of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against him, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For when God loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So discipline is to be part of our lives, part of our raising of our children, But notice here that Jesus, in his last hours, he explained to his disciples, he says, my hour has come. It's time that I will suffer the cross. I will be crucified. We know that Jesus travailed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested. And he asked the Father three times, Lord, If there's any other way for mankind to be redeemed, let's do it. And he said that three times. He was begging God the Father to provide salvation for you and I in another way. He despised the cross. However, in God's economy, the shedding of blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. It was necessary for Jesus to be crucified for our redemption. In 12.2 of Hebrews, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, endured the cross. Now, don't miss this. Jesus despised the shame of the cross. He despised the curse of the cross. For we heard him in the garden when he pleaded with his father to avoid the cross. I cannot imagine what it would be like to be on death row in a prison. I can't imagine what it would be like to sit there in a cell knowing that in a month or whatever that I was going to be executed. That would have to just consume you, the thought of dying. So how long before the cross did Jesus know he would suffer the cross? We have no way of knowing exactly. The cross was a dreadful, haunting event that never escaped Jesus' attention once he realized He had to go to the cross. As a lad, we get insight into Jesus' life. When his mother and father returned to Jerusalem uh, to retrieve him, he had stayed behind and talking to the elders and stuff. We know that Jesus told his mother. What did he tell her? I must be about my father's business, indicating, strongly indicating that he knew what his end was. For the business of God is salvation. 
salvation through Jesus upon a cross. So how much pre-knowledge did Jesus have before he suffered the cross? Who knows for sure? However, therefore, consequently, (laughs) for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Don't ever miss that. The cross was so much more gruesome and haunting to our Lord than we could ever imagine. What a wonderful Savior we have. Amen. Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Lord, it's inconceivable what you went through for our benefit, for us to have our sins forgiven, to have a right standing with you and your Father. Lord, we can understand why you despise the cross. We fail to really understand why you still went to the cross, but we're glad you did. Glad you suffered for us. Lord, we would that all men would be saved, but that just isn't the case. But Lord, we would pray that by your spirit you would bring men, women, children to the knowledge of what you did for us on the cross. You hated it, you despised it, yet you went to it. Thank you, Lord, again for your loving us so much to suffer for us. Thank you for salvation. We rejoice in our salvation, Lord. Thank you that we have forgiveness of sin because you became sin for us. And it was a cursed thing, but it was for our glory. So we thank you, Lord. Openly, we declare your goodness before all mankind. So, Lord, Help us to be quick to share the goodness of yourself, your willingness to suffer for us. May that be our banner. May that be what we uh, thrive in, rejoice in. Thank you again for salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to our God and Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty dominion and power both now and forever amen